Throughout history, there have been many, many innocent people who have experienced injustice. And the result of that, they've been imprisoned or in some cases even killed as a result of an unfair trial or being unjustly treated and charged. That's one of the reasons why the Innocence Project uh, came into being. It was a desire to free those and return credibility to those who were wrongfully accused. The Innocence Project uses things like DNA testing to exonerate those who have been wrongly imprisoned. They work hard for reform in the penal system as well. The individuals who are part of the Innocence Project are tireless and they are energized and they are tenacious in pursuing righting wrongs, restoring justice again, giving people back their name and their reputation. If the Innocence Project had been around in the time of Jesus, they would have observed the farcical trial that Jesus was put through and had been all over it. I can imagine them doing DNA testing. Boy, the results of that, huh? Yes, he's human, but there's something really different about his DNA. He is the Son of God. You know, the Father, <clears throat> God, was present during the trial of Jesus. The Father, who's the author of justice. But he didn't do anything about it. He didn't do anything about it. He let his son be wrongfully accused, unjustly treated, and crucified. Now, we have the big picture, so we, we know why God didn't intervene, because God did not want to thwart what he was going to use to save mankind. That is the death of his son for you and me so we might experience grace and forgiveness. Now the implications of what happens this Holy Week back in time in history are huge for us. Because the question that it raises is as the followers of Jesus, if you are one, what are we supposed to do when we experience injustice? Especially when we face injustice for the cause of Christ. What should our response be? How should we handle it? You know, as Americans, uh, it's kind of bred in our, in our very nature, in our very culture, that you stand up for your rights. Somebody wrongly or falsely accuses you, you do everything necessary. You hire the attorneys. You go to court. You do everything you can to protest and to, and to proclaim your innocence. But as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus remains quite silent. Is that what we're expected to do? Take your Bibles out and turn to Mark 15, if you will. We're going to do something a little bit unusual. We don't do it very often, but I think given Holy Week, It'd be good for us to stand for the reading of God's Word. So, if you don't mind, stand with me as I read Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Here's what it says. Very early in the morning, 
the chief priests with the elders, the teachers, the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest, so the word is better translated envy, that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed against? Uh, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, the triumphal entry, what we think of as Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate this weekend, had passed. The Passover was completed, that meal that Jesus had with his followers. The betrayal and the arrest in the garden was over. Now Jesus stood on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, if you want to get his name straight. Just easier to say uh, Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, he wanted to know. Are you a threat to Rome, to Caesar? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds and he said, you said so. Emphasis on you. Actually, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase of the Bible gets the translation right. In essence, what Jesus said is, if you say so, am I the king of the Jews? If you say so. What's that all about? Answer that question. You've got to actually take a look at the same incident with a little bit more detail found over in John chapter 18. If you'd like to turn there with me, please. John chapter 18. And we're looking at the same story, but we just had a little bit more color added to it. Listen to what it says in John 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Now we get more insight, don't we? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, replied Pilate? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you said that I am a king. Or you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
In essence, what Jesus says to him in that passage of Scripture is, you want to know if I'm a king? Yes, I am a king. But not, not the kind of king you're expecting, not the kind of king you're looking for. And the kingdom that I'm talking about isn't your typical kingdom, isn't the kind of kingdom you're thinking about. Jesus says, only those who know the truth really know what kind of king I am and what kind of kingdom I'm ushering in. What is the truth? (laughs) Pilate asks. What is the truth? Sounds like an agnostic, doesn't he? I mean, is the truth Rome and Caesar and the pantheon of gods that we worship? Is truth the Jews and Moses and the law and the one God you Jews worship? What is the truth? What a relevant question for today. A lot of people today, what is the truth? You know, it was a time not that long ago in our culture, in our nation, when if you ask what is the truth, an empiricist, a rationalist, a modernist would jump up right away and say, the truth is what you can prove in a laboratory. The truth is fact and evidence and data. But that has changed, left some of us behind. In the postmodern world, truth is not necessarily fact and data and what you can prove. Truth is often what you feel and think. I'm going to give you an illustration, and I'm only using it at this point as an illustration because it's, it's in our culture, it's, it's relevant today, and I just I want to use it that way. It's the whole discussion of, of gender in our culture today. It's no longer, gender is no longer an issue of biology. It's not biological. Gender is what one feels and thinks about themselves and what they are. That's the the modern thought. So what is the truth? And and Jesus responds to Pilate, and he says, I am the truth. Jesus is very exclusive. Truth for him is not an opinion. It's not subjective. He just says, I am the truth. You want to do an interesting study, take a look at the Gospel of John. And if you have a, a concordance, look up every instance of truth. Truth is mentioned a lot in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says, you must believe on the truth, and then you'll be born again. And he goes on and on throughout the Gospel of John. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Jesus died for the truth. Jesus was exclusive about the truth. The truth is we are all born in our sins, and we are born dead in our sins, spiritually dead in our sins. The truth is we cannot save ourselves. God must save us, and he must send his son to do that as a sacrifice for us, as a substitute for us. The truth is Jesus was crucified for us. He rose again on the third day, and the truth is those who put their faith and trust in him will be born again, will be born again. That's... That, that's, the, that's the truth that Jesus, that Jesus died for. And Pilate heard all of that. And he just, he just didn't see any reason to, to put Jesus to death. What kind of king is that? What kind of kingdom is that? It sounds more like a philosophy than anything else. So he tells the people, I can't find any reason to put this man to death. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew it was a farcical trial. But the people cried all the louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
And Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, look at all the insults they're hurling at you. Look at all the accusations. Are you going to defend yourself? And Jesus is silent. He's silent. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have called down. He could have called down the angels to rescue him. He could have overthrown Rome and he could have ousted the religious leaders out of the way. He could establish a political kingdom, establish armies, a great force. But of what value would that be to you and me? We would still die truthfully in our sins. Condemnation. The judgment of God. And so Jesus, Jesus just stood silent. He wasn't going to enter into a political conversation. He'd already said enough. And the crowds and the leaders went crazy. They were so concerned that Jesus might just get off. So they're like frantic, they're energized, they're angry. And Jesus says, just, just calm, peaceful. What's that all about? How can it be so calm and peaceful when he's, fading, when he's facing the, the threat of his life? I've written the answer up for you if you want to jot it down or take a look at it. Simply put, Jesus quietly and calmly endured injustice so that we could experience forgiveness. That's it. Jesus peacefully and calmly and silently endured the injustice so that we could experience God's forgiveness. That's the truth. But here's the challenge for you and for me. There's a passage in the Gospel of Mark that brings us into the story. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, says this, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must, it's not an option, it's not something you can think about, it's not, I may, I may not, I, you know, I, I'll choose option A, not option B. He says, you must give up your own way. That is so un-American. That is so anti-capitalist. That is so anti-materialist. We fight to get our way. Jesus says, you must give up your own way. You must give up the fight, so to speak. And you must take up your cross and follow me. And I think, I think one aspect of the cross is you've got to follow my example when you face injustice for my sake. Don't run and hide. Don't compromise and fit in. Don't confront and fight. But follow my example. Well, what is his example? Well, I jotted a few things down, and, and I thought to myself, when is, it, when is it hard to follow Jesus' example, and when is it we must follow Jesus' example? And I jotted down, like when our beliefs are being mocked, or like when we're told that God's word, the scriptures, are myth, or when our Lord is ridiculed as a confused good teacher, but certainly not the Son of God. Or when we are told that our values are bigoted, intolerant, and hateful. Or when we're tempted to be politically correct and blend in instead of standing out. In those, 
in those moments, we've got to follow the model and example of Jesus. And I think the model of Jesus boils down to three things. I wrote them down for you. Here's the first one. You've got to, first of all, be willing, like him, to boldly state and take your stand on the truth. Jesus always spoke the truth. Boldly. He never compromised. He never played politics. He didn't try to please people. He just, he presented himself as the truth. And this is the truth about so many things. But look at this. Secondly, he lovingly compelled others to follow the truth, to follow him. So while he spoke the truth boldly, staked his life on the truth, he was the truth, he lovingly compelled people, whether it's the, whether it's the prostitute, the adulterer, the tax collector, the known sinners, he lovingly compelled them to give up the lie they were living for and living in and to follow the truth. The only time you see Jesus really getting angry is with the religious hypocrites who should have been the truth followers, who should have been the truth leaders. But generally speaking, he lovingly compelled people, come and follow me. And thirdly, like Jesus, I've got to be willing to peacefully endure the consequences for standing on the truth and lovingly compelling people to follow the truth. Because ultimately, I'm not seeking political approval. I'm not seeking cultural approval. I'm seeking God's approval. And I live for him. And I don't live for the culture. I don't live for the moment. I'm willing to trust him. I'm, 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 willing, I'm willing to follow him. That's the model we're supposed to follow. It's a revolutionary model. Jesus died for salvation. He died for forgiveness. And there's a sense in which as his followers, we're to also be willing to die Maybe not physically, but to self at least, for the sake of salvation and forgiveness. And sometimes we make a greater impact by, by, by boldly stating and living on the truth, lovingly compelling people to follow the truth, and peacefully and silently, calmly enduring the injustice that's sometimes leveled at us at school at work, in our communities, even in our families, for being all about the truth. Now, if I were preaching this in a third world country, some of the places that Whitdale's involved in, they would so totally understand this. They'd be amening it right now. But in our culture, we still have, you know, we still have an enormous amount of freedom. We're not really being pressed, although it's beginning. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet, but I'm telling you, the day's coming much quicker than we realize. Where if you're going to live for Jesus, if you're going to speak boldly for the sake of Christ, and even lovingly for the sake of Christ, you are going to get pullback. And it's going to cost you something. Your job, reputation, popularity, ridicule. Some of you already know it. But it's coming. It's coming. Martin Luther King Jr. to me exemplifies this in his life. Here is a man, here's a man who spoke boldly against the evil, the wickedness of racism and inequality in this country. 
He spoke boldly about it. He spoke about the truth, the truth of equality, the truth of justice, the truth of what it means to love people and not discriminate. But he also, he also compelled people into this movement peacefully. It kind of reminds me of the scene of the angry leaders in the crowd and Jesus, you know. It was the people on the other side who were so angry, who were violent. Well, King and others peacefully, peacefully tried to protest and say, but this is the truth. You know that even white pastors ridiculed Martin Luther King Jr. and accused him of civil disobedience because he wouldn't shut up, but he kept speaking out. He was put in jail in Birmingham, and in Birmingham he wrote a very important and famous letter, and I want to read you an excerpt of it because it relates so much to what we are talking about here right now. He said, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law of God. In his letter, King goes on to say, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. That's Jesus. Jesus openly broke away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Rome. He didn't play political games. He didn't try to please people. He didn't try to be in the majority. He just staked his life on the truth of God. He was God. And he lovingly compelled people to follow the truth, and he suffered. He suffered for the sake of the truth. And you know, he started a revolution. He really did. He started a revolution by doing that. You know, there's such power in truth and love and forgiveness. There really is. It's not our nature to practice truth and love and forgiveness, but there's enormous power in truth and love and forgiveness. And that's who Jesus was. And that's what he called his followers to do. Remember Peter in the garden? At first, when they come to arrest Jesus, he takes his sword out and he lops off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. And Jesus says, stop. It's not, it's not what my, I'm not about, I'm not about violence. I'm not about being militant in that sense. And he heals the guy's ear, by the way. And Peter's kind of guy is like, yeah, let's get into a rumble about this whole thing. And Peter had to learn that's not how you're going to change the world. Look at Peter after the book of Acts. He's a different man. He's seen the model of Jesus. In fact, there's a book that was written by a guy named Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. He was a sociologist historian. And the book is, is very profound because in the book he answers the question, how is it? How is it that in those early centuries, Christians, these Christians overturned the pagan Greco-Roman culture? How did they do it? They followed the model of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Tim Keller brings this out from Rodney Stark's book. 
Number one, in the early centuries after Christ was crucified and risen and ascended to the Father, in those days, the ratio of men to women was about 140 to 100, according to historians and sociologists. Why more men and less women? Because of female infanticide. Girls had no value in those days. Women had no value in those days. And so oftentimes what would happen is a, a wife, a mother would give birth to her girl. It would be announced to the Roman father, husband, and he would say, oh, a girl, put her on the trash heap, drowned her. We want boys, not girls. The early church said, we will have none of that. Little girls matter as much as little boys. Bring us, give us the little girls. We'll take them in, we'll love them, we'll care for them, we'll look for them roaming on the streets. They have value to God. You know, in those early centuries, um, if you were... If you're a woman, you're either a wife or you're a mistress. You're the wife or you're a mistress. And if you're a wife, the expectation is you must be sexually faithful to your husband. But listen to this. Husbands were not required to be sexually faithful to their wives. Men had mistresses on the side. It was like common. It was just part of the culture, part of the day. The early church said, no way. We don't believe in a double standard like that. And so as people converted, they said, husbands, you cannot have mistresses. You must be faithful to your wife just as your wife has to be faithful to you. In the early centuries, if you were a widow, there's actually a rule that you had to be married within two years. Because a woman's role was either to be married or to be a mistress. I mean, why else were women created? To be a wife or to be a mistress. The early church said, no way. No way. A widow doesn't have to get married again. If she wants to remain single, she can remain single. Bring us the widows. And we'll care for the widows. We'll love the widows. And so women flocked and were a huge part of the growth and the rise of the early church. Because the early church stood on what is truth. They went counterculture. And they did it lovingly. They demonstrated that love, despite the fact they got a lot of persecution and a lot of blowback from the Roman Empire. You know, in those, in those centuries, people were poor, so many poor people. We have poverty today, but not like it was then. And the Romans just didn't really care much about the poor. But the Christian church said, bring us the poor. We are the poor. We will love the poor. We'll feed the poor. We'll clothe the poor. We'll fellowship with the poor. And it made an emperor by the Julian very angry, very upset. He didn't like Christianity. He didn't like the growth of Christianity. And he wrote a letter to a friend. And we just happen to have, historically, an excerpt of that letter. Let me read it to you as it's been translated. He wrote his friend and said, our religion is not prospering. The Christian religion is growing and growing. Why don't we realize how much Christianity's success is due to their radical care for the poor? Christians do not just take care of their own poor. They take care of our pagan poor as well. Whereas it is obvious for everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. Why can't we pagans take care of the poor the way the Christians can? 
They don't just take care of their own poor. They take care of our poor. They're promiscuous in their social conscience. The Jews take care of the Jewish poor. The Greeks take care of the Greek poor. The Romans take care of the Roman poor. And the Africans take care of the African poor. But these Christians, they take care of everybody's poor. Then they bring them into the community. They mix the races because they have this idea that everybody's a sinner and therefore we're all equal before God. What's wrong with these Christians? <laughs> it was a revolution. It was a revolution. They believed the truth. They stated the truth. They lovingly compelled people to follow the truth. They showed the truth. They demonstrated the truth. I, th I think the same thing is, is, is still true today. You know, oftentimes what happens is we get our minds and our eyes focused on the people who are against us, the vocal people who are against us. And then we kind of, as Christians, we just think everybody's against us. And what happens is we get preoccupied with the people who are pushing against us, and our tendency is to say, well, if you can push, look how much harder I can push. And what we don't realize is that there's a whole bunch of people who are watching us. And they're looking to see if we actually live what we say, what we speak. And when they see us living the truth, when they see us lovingly, sacrificially living the truth, I want you to know that's attractive to them. Because not everybody's against us. Not everybody's against you. There are so many people on the sidelines of our culture right now that are just looking for something genuine and real. But when they see the church behave like, like the politicians, when they see the church behave in an aggressive, confrontive, nasty way, they just go, who needs that? I got better things to do in my life. But when they see the church is making a difference, when they see that we're actually living out the truth and loving and compelling and caring and ministering, man, they're going to come check it out. That's why our Vision 22 Centers of Hope is, is such a huge initiative because we're trying to turn our church to, to do more than just speak the truth. Let's go all out in these days and demonstrate and show the truth. Let me give you one more example from Stark. You know, in the early centuries, there was a lot of disease. In some cases, whole towns would be wiped out. A fourth, a third of the population killed by contagion. And when a disease would hit, when, like in 165 AD, when a plague, when the big plague occurred, people would just leave town. As soon as it was known the plague is here, they would head for the hills. They'd leave behind their loved ones. They'd leave behind strangers, neighbors, friends. They left them behind. Sorry, I got to save myself. Got to save my family. Do you know who did stay behind? Do you know who did take care of the sick? Christians. Not all Christians, but generally speaking, Christians. In fact, we have an eyewitness account from history. Let me read it to you. Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ. And many died, for they were infected by their neighbors but when they departed, listen, but when they departed, they did so serenely and cheerfully, accepting their pains. Why? How could they do that? Because their master did it. Jesus did it. And they wanted to be like him. They had nothing to lose. 
heaven to gain. In the meantime, they wanted to demonstrate God's mercy, God's care, God's nature, and God's forgiveness. Are you part of the revolution? Are we willing to live that way? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the example that he has set for us. Now, Lord, our, our decision has to be, will we give up our own way, our own agenda, our own desire, and will we, Lord, follow your son's example? Father, there's a lot for us to wrestle with here. None of us wants to be unjustly treated. We all want our rights. But Father, there are some times when we just, we just need to speak the truth, keep ourselves calm, continue to lovingly compel people towards you, and then, Father, seek your approval and nobody else's, and endure, oh God, endure the hardships, whatever they may be. God, help us to wrestle through this and come out victorious. Help us, Lord, as a church soon to be on four campuses to model and demonstrate this and to lead the revolution. In Jesus' name, amen.